The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 7. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to pray for us and pray that the rain holds off. If it doesn't, I've got the best seat in the house. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your grace, your kindness, that you call sinners to yourself, that we get the mercy of God. Even being here this morning is a mercy. We get to worship you, what we were created for. So I thank you for all the families. I thank you for the kids. I thank you for the older folks and the younger folks. I thank you for the singles and the married and the, all, all the people that you've brought together from all the different backgrounds and you've brought them under your banner. You've brought them under your name here and you brought them under your word. Father, would you speak to your people this morning? I'm a sinner myself. So I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I need you to help people hear what you are saying. Would you open our eyes? Would you soften our heart? Would you bring correction in areas of our life and thinking and behavior that is not in line with your word? Would you be merciful for us this morning? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount, working through the Beatitudes. And to, to start us out this morning, I want to paint a picture for us. Here's the scene. God is there. Now what comes into your mind when you think about God? If it's accurate, if it's in line with the Bible, the way that God has revealed himself to us in Scripture, this is the way God describes himself. He says he is holy. That means he's not like us. He's perfect. He's totally good all the way down without a, even a hint of anything bad. He's truth itself. He cannot tell a lie. He's just. And not just just the way that our society tries to be just. We try to create laws and then uphold those laws. Just God is just all the way down. He never lets the guilty go unpunished, Scripture says. He's pure without any impurity. So as you start piling up these descriptive terms, we realize that holy is so much not like us. New Testament scripture says in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. Anything 
less holy than himself would be consumed in the flames of his presence. It would be burnt up like dried wood in a fireplace. God is the brilliant light that obliterates all darkness. He's the sovereign judge of the universe who is simultaneously all-knowing and 100% just, giving the lawbreakers the exact punishment they deserve. Now, I could go on and on and on, but I'm trying to paint a picture for us. And I know more than likely, as I go on like that, we're getting more and more uncomfortable. Why is that? Because one day soon, you will stand face to face before this God. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the God to whom we must give account. And in that day and in that moment, he will see you and know you more intimately than you even know yourself. And in that moment, he will see right before his eyes every thought you've ever had, every evil impulse you've given into, every disobedient behavior, every false word that you've uttered, every move you've made in your entire life. It will be all right there before him when he looks. And in that moment, what will your greatest need be? What will your greatest need in that moment that is coming for every single one of us who've been made in the image of God, what is your greatest need in that moment? In one word, it's mercy. In that moment, which is getting closer every second that ticks by, our only hope is that God is more than holy or more than just, he's actually merciful. If God were to only give people what they deserve, we are all in a desperate situation indeed. King David said this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Jeez, David, a little negative, bro. He didn't even have 24-7 news, and he could diagnose this problem. Paul then, just to make sure that this isn't some kind of Old Testament reality that's been Changed by the New Testament, revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul echoes these words, quotes these words in Romans chapter 3. He says this, Romans 3, 10 through 20. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. We still lie. We still deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, this is our news cycle right in front of our eyes. Cursing, lying, deceit, bloodshed. Things haven't changed. Paul goes on in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Listen, this is why. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says this. He says there's two laws at work in mankind right now. There's the natural law, the law that's written in the human heart that we know not to lie, not to steal, not to cheat, not to curse God, not to kill. But guess what? We do it anyways. And we stand condemned under the law, the, the, the natural law. And also, it's God's special law that he's revealed in his word that says that these things are sin. And we do them anyway. As someone told me this week, yes, I know it is sin. Yes, I'm still going to do it. I said, okay, you're crazy. I didn't actually say that, but that's what I felt because that's what it means to disobey God, to know something is wrong and to go ahead and do it anyways is to step into chaos. It's to invite chaos into our life. So here's our starting point this morning. You and I are standing before God, believer and the unbeliever, we are 100% accountable to him for all our thoughts, feelings, and actions in our life. And those thoughts, feelings, and actions have been far short of the glory of God. Therefore, we're all standing before him condemned already. We are guilty as charged and now await his final verdict on our sentencing. Why did I paint that picture? Because I want you to feel the weight of our plight. I want you to get a real sense of where we stand. And then I want you to hear these words of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus here is speaking of that last day when we will stand before his throne. The throne of justice. And he says, what, what do we need? If you want to receive mercy on that last day, Jesus says, then your life had better be marked consistently by showing mercy to others. Now, I know where you're going right now in your head and in your heart. So I got to say it again. I say it every single week. Jesus is not presenting here a salvation by showing mercy paradigm. Showing mercy would just be another form of obeying the law. So we must ask ourselves, where does this mercy come from? And we heard it in our absolution this morning. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy. We need a lot of mercy, but guess what? God is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So here's the paradigm I need us to see. 
Sinners receive mercy from God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here is what sinners do with that mercy. They receive it from God. And then after receiving it from God, they give it out to others. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says. Those who traffic in mercy, they receive it and they give it. They don't just receive it and then sit on it. They receive it and give it away. And those who receive it and give it away and they spend their life trafficking in mercy on the last day, you know what they can expect? Absolute mercy from Jesus at the throne of grace. So mercy is an important topic for us to discuss, to discuss, isn't it? And I don't think we discuss it very often. None of us can enter into God's eternal kingdom without first receiving it. And Jesus says those who've received it become merciful people. So we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like to be merciful? Now, I could just say, watch the news and do the opposite. But I think I need to unpack the words of Jesus a little better than that. Okay, and so we'll, we'll see. Now, when I came to faith, the pastor once told me, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So in that definition, mercy is just not getting punished, and then grace is getting the blessings that I don't deserve that Jesus earned for me. There is some truth to that simple definition, but Jesus uses mercy in a lot fuller way. And I'm going to go to a few places in the New Testament. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go there with me. The first place is just later on in Matthew chapter 5, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9. So let's go to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to see Jesus unpack what does it look like to be merciful or to have mercy. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Let's read it together. As Jesus passed on from there... He saw a man called Matthew. <laughs> got some Matthews here. We, we got a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. We all love this guy already. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, first thing we need to see here is Matthew is a tax collector. Now, a tax collector was considered at least two things by the Jews. One a traitor to God's people because he was working for the Roman occupation of Palestine and was literally collecting taxes for the oppressors. And two, he was wealthy and gaining his wealth through coercive means against his own people. So, oh boy, I hear some rain. So Matthew was seen as a political traitor and exploiter of God's people. He was a rich man getting rich off the poor. So Matthew wasn't a good dude. And what does Jesus do to this bad dude? He walks up to him and he gives him mercy by saying, come, follow me. Jesus calls a bad dude. And Matthew does it. He rose and he followed him. But then Jesus takes this mercy thing even farther, way farther than most many Christians are comfortable taking it. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus 
reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is hanging out here with the notorious others. Those people, the bad guys, the worst ones, the deplorables, the ones we determine they're our cultural enemies, the ones who we think are ruining our country. Jesus has them over for dinner and he's hanging out with them and then in walk the religious leaders of the day. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Why do Christ, Why would a Christian hang out with sinners? Jesus is like, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. That's like asking, why does a doctor hang out with so many sick people? Because the doctor is on mission to the sick person. Because the Christian or the Christ is on mission to the sinners. Because the Christian is on mission to the sinners. The Christian has what the sinner needs. And that is what? Mercy. Jesus goes on and says this. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So don't think being called a sinner is, a, is bad news. That's great news because Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. Now, I want you to say here, who are the bad guys in this story? Jesus is telling the story. Jesus is or depicting the story. Who are the bad guys? The religious people. The people who don't show mercy to sinners. Now, how do, you, how do you show mercy to sinners? Jesus shows us right here. You spend time with them in a non-judgy way. I like that new word, non-judgy, right? In a non-judgy way. And show them and tell them that, guess what? Jesus came to save people just like you. I'm spending time with you. Jesus wants to spend time with you. Jesus wants you. He came to call the sinners, not the righteous. Now, let me ask you this Christian in this tent and gathering this morning. Does your life tell that story? Does your dinner table tell the story that God gives mercy to sinners? Do you functionally, do you really, does, the, does your life only tell the story that God likes the righteous, that God likes the good, that God came for the ones that can get their act together? Is that the story that your life tells to outsiders? What, what does Jesus say here? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Does your life with God Tell the story that God loves sacrifice or showing mercy. So many religious people totally miss this Christian principle. 
They get so caught up in doing good things like going to church and tithing and reading their Bible that somehow they miss the things that are more important. And they're not just more important because I say they're more important. They're more important because Jesus said they were more important. Listen to the way Jesus said it in Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, and I'm going to replace these two words here, scribes and Pharisees, with their modern equivalent. Woe to you, Christians and pastors, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. That means you tithe off of your birthday presents, okay? You tithe off of you go to the garden and you get the produce, you even tithe on that. You're, not, you're tithing on your tax return. Okay? You do this, but you look, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. The more important things. What are the more important things? Justice. Seeing that everybody gets their due. Mercy. And faithfulness. Just so we don't get confused, we don't throw out the law. He says, these things you ought to have done, so don't stop tithing. That's a good thing without neglecting the others. And he says this, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Um, Hilarious, Jesus. Right? You're, You're so meticulous in some things of the law. You're straining out a gnat but you're choking to death on a camel because you're not marked by justice or mercy or faithfulness. What a joke. Here, when Jesus teaches about mercy, he purposefully juxtaposes the merciful and the religious person. The person who's more concerned about rules and religiosity then actually the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, they strain out gnats and they swallow a camel. Now there's one more place I want to turn to where Jesus discussed what mercy is supposed to look like. And it's in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Please go there because we're going to, it's another narrative section. I want to read it. <clears throat> 20, chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he's, this lawyer stands up, and thank God for lawyers. They often see the implications of, thi- of things that most of us would naturally miss. They're fine print people, right? So here a lawyer questions Jesus on how to get to heaven, And Jesus doesn't take him to, you know, the Romans road and give him an easy answer. Jesus asks some questions himself, some brilliant questions. So Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Woo, that's a lawyer answer. Killed it. Pass the bar, flying colors. Jesus says, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But like I said, the lawyer sees the fine print in this deal. 
And so, verse 29, but the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, what does that mean? He felt condemned by Jesus' answer or his own answer. He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus' answer here bothered the lawyer. The lawyer felt judged by it and was standing condemned. And so this next question shows us the, his motives. He says, who is my neighbor? Now what's he doing here? This lawyer is asking Jesus, where does my responsibility to love others end? The lawyer is asking Jesus, who are my non-neighbors? I want to know, where's the line in the sand here? Who do I have to love and who can I just ignore? Which group of people can I get to heaven by, and avoid loving them? I, I want to go to heaven, but I, don't, I, I want to know who, who I can avoid. And what does Jesus do? Don't miss this. He tells a story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man, and more than likely a Jewish man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The Jericho road can still be seen today. It's an 18-mile stretch of road filled with rocky terrain that made it a great place for robbers to hide and mug people. That's what's going on. A Jew is walking, he gets mugged, he's beat up, he's stripped, he's robbed, he's lying half naked and half dead in the street. Now here is where things get interesting. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest, let's modernize it, a pastor was walking down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A pastor walks by and sees a man, his own people, beat up and half dead, lying in the street and the pastor crosses to the other side of the road and does nothing. Now why? Jesus doesn't say. Maybe he's late for a meeting. Maybe he's got a coffee date. I don't know. Maybe he looks at that person and does what most religious people do and go, I wonder what they did to deserve that. I wonder, that guy's, he's probably a thief or something. He probably did something bad and I'm just gonna, I, can't, I don't have time, I'm not gonna get involved in that. I'm not, I'm not into inner city ministry anyway, so I'm going on. The next one, so likewise, Jesus says, a Levite, think of a deacon here. A deacon, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Religious folks were over too in this story. Once again, Jesus doesn't tell us why. But he looks, here's the thing. He looks, he sees, he looks away. But then comes the hook. Here is the turn. But... A Samaritan. Now, this is a critical piece of information. Culturally, it would have been unthinkable for a Samaritan to help a Jew. 
The Jews considered Samaritans half-breed rebels who had disobeyed God by intermarrying with Gentiles. So Jesus purposefully here is using cultural enemies as his examples in this story. You could modernize this and do a black-white in the 60s. You could do liberal and conservative today. Jesus is playing on these cultural narratives and these cultural enemies, and he's showing a story to show what mercy looks like. Let's keep reading. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. So he didn't just see, he walked up to the man laying half dead, and he got into his presence. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion literally means to suffer with someone. That's what the word compassion means. Now, how do you suffer with someone? You don't just feel bad for them and sit down and go, well, I'm going to be beat up too. I'm going to just sit here in the middle of the road with you and just suffer with you and we're just going to feel sorry for ourselves. No, no. You take that person's suffering onto yourself in some form. Look what he does. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. This takes personal time and personal devotion. Pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him takes a whole day here and the next one and then the next day he took out two denarii that's a large sum of money and he gave it to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back do you see how much this cost this Samaritan it costed him his time it costed him his attention it costed him his care it costed him his money he didn't walk by and assume that somebody else was going to do it. Oh, I think there's probably governmental agencies that he can appeal to and they could probably take care of him. He felt it his obligation to cross racial lines, to cross culturally divisive lines and to go get his hands dirty in the mess of someone else and the suffering of someone else. Jesus here makes his point clear to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus here gives us a very sharp photograph of mercy and its opposite. Mercy has four dimensions in this story. First, it sees distress. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was and he saw him. Do you hear that? Came to where the man was and saw him. Mercy looks. Mercy watches the video. Mercy might even leave 
the comfortable neighborhood that we have found ourselves in, that we know we would never in a million years walk upon a person that had been jumped and beaten and found themselves in this situation. Many Christians today, we've moved our way out of such neighborhoods and we would, we've disconnected ourselves from this story and we would never see a person like this. The only time we're going to see a person like this is if we're traveling back into those neighborhoods to serve or we are clicking on the video on social media. But the first thing we see, religious people look away and the merciful watch. Secondly, the merciful responds with a heart of compassion or pity toward a person in distress. Guys, whatever segment of society you find yourself in, white middle class, black middle class, wherever you find yourself, listen, we've been fed our entire lives cultural narratives. When you see something, this is how you respond to it. When you see something, here's the political argument. Compassion destroys those cultural narratives. It says, I have no idea why this person got jumped. I have no idea what's going on. I need to find out. I need to step in. I need to listen. I need to come close. I need to take a risk on this thing. That's what compassion does. That's what the heart of the merciful does. Doesn't jump to conclusions. Oh, I Guarantee I know what happened here. So first, it sees the distress. Second, it responds internally with a heart of compassion or pity. Pity, it feels. Third, it responds. Listen, this is, mercy, guys, isn't just feeling bad. It responds with external, practical effort to relieve the distress. He went to him and bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own horse or, or beast, took him to the inn, took care of him, paid for it out of his own income, his own savings. Mercy responds practically. And the fourth dimension of mercy is that it happens especially clear. It's especially clear. It's especially displayed when the person in distress is so different from you. Looks like a, by, by race or religion, looks like an enemy to you. Jesus here, three different stories, says, blessed are the merciful. Shows us what the merciful look like. Says, go and do Likewise. Can I ask you, is your life consistently marked by this type of mercy? Many of us know the brokenness of all the systems in our government that have been, been built up to try to eliminate this type of thing or try to provide ministry and mercy to the, the least of these. We know, oh, we've got all the, the, the critiques of those things, but really, do you have a right to critique it if your hands aren't dirty actually being merciful with those types of people? 
Many of us say, well, the only reason there's the welfare state and there's the only reason of this is because the church hasn't done her job. You're right. Absolute truth. That's true. But do we just sit back and say those things or do we actually get involved? Are we actually bringers and givers of mercy? If you took us out of our city, would our city be a lot less merciful? Jesus wants us to ask ourselves, is this how I treat my cultural enemies? Am I going out of my way consistently to help the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed? Now listen, if we can honestly ask those questions and self-diagnose and we say, no, I'm really not, it might be because we have not yet realized or received the mercy of God that comes through the gospel. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Listen, according to God and according to the Bible, we are all the man dead, lying half dead in the street. We're worse than that. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. But when Jesus came into our dangerous world, he came down our road. He walked the Jericho road for us. And though we had been his enemies, he was moved by compassion for us. And he came to us and he saved us, not merely at the risk of his life, like the good Samaritan did, but at the cost of his life. On the cross, Jesus paid a debt that we could have never paid ourselves. Jesus is the great Samaritan to whom the good Samaritan points. And before we can go out in our city with this kind of neighbor love, you have to receive this type of love, this type of mercy from the hand of God. Only if you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite, will you go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need? And once we receive this ultimate radical mercy from God, we can start to show mercy to our neighbors and to our city and to our world that the Bible calls us to. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we we operate out of an illusion most of the time. We consider ourselves pretty good people. And your word just fillets us. It cuts us wide open and lays us on the table. And we have nothing to do but raise up our hands and go, yep, that's me. I am a sinner. I don't show mercy to others. Father, would you be gracious to us? Would you be merciful to us? Would you see, would you enable us to see Jesus as that great Samaritan who stepped into our plight, took our pain and suffering and sin on himself at the great cost of his own life, 
paid our debt, forgave us, gave us mercy, filled our spiritual bank account with mercy on mercy on mercy and put us into a world where we can delve out and give out mercy. God, would we be mercy dealers in our city? For those here this morning, this is brand new news to them. But they hear it as good news that Jesus came to call sinners, not righteous. We thank you for the mercy that you've given us through Christ. And Father, you've given us another mercy, a mercy that we get to take part in every single week to remind ourselves of the gift that you gave Jesus And the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is my blood that's been shed for you. That your blood covers our sins. And we're told that as often as we come together, we're to take this bread and eat it and we're to take, take this cup and we're to drink it and we're to remind ourselves the gospel. Would you do that for us today? In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.